everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and I'm really excited about our show today. We're going to be speaking to Dr. Scott Kolbaba, and he has gotten together with a bunch of other physicians, 26 other physicians exactly, that created this book of miraculous experiences that doctors are sometimes hesitant to share with their patients or anyone. And we're going to be discussing the book, Physicians Untold Story. And Dr. Kolbaba is a practicing physician in Wheaton, Illinois. He completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and he is proud of his family of seven children and his puppy, Grace. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Scott. Thanks, April. Great to be here. Yes, and you also have, and we will put it in the show notes, but um, a pretty extensive just history of where you also did um, your residency at the Rush Presbyterian uh, St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago and your membership awards. And we will have all of that in the show notes if people are more interested, but I'm more excited to just get to the meat and potatoes of this interview. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, I would love for you to just give our audience a little bit of a background, um, in the field of medicine that you have been working in and then how you kind of got inspired to create this book. Well, April, I'm an ordinary doc, uh, but like the television shows, I see exotic and wonderful things every day, like sore throats and diarrhea and uh, coughs and colds. And I love medicine. I've been an ordinary, regular internal medicine doc for 35 years. I know it's hard for me to believe it's been that long. And, um, you know, I love medicine. I love uh, the privilege I have of, of being able to help people, at least to some extent, most of the time. And about, oh, Maybe 10 years ago, uh, I had an experience that got me thinking about things that are that are a little bit beyond this world. And uh, I came from a real small family. My uh, uh, parents had only one child, me. Uh, naturally, I was spoiled to death. I only I was the also the only uh, grandchild. And um, when my mother died, it was a real um, a real big loss for me. I you know as a doctor, I'm used to having people live and die and and seeing, you know, the, the nature of life. But, but this, this really brought things very close to home. And uh, I thought about that for a long time. And, you know, when, when, when you, someone leaves like that, uh, I used to go to the phone, and, and when somebody, one of our kids had a, a neat experience, like they got a straight A's on the report card or something, I'd reach for the phone and automatically try to, to dial my mother, and then I'd realize that she wasn't there. And I began to wonder, you know, if a person that has left us still is part of our lives and still can communicate with us. Well, we had a vacation. I like to take vacations with our kids. We've got, as I mentioned, seven kids. And uh, we take the kids and the grandkids and the and the uh, spouses on vacation with us. And, and uh, naturally, Dad pays, and that's why everyone comes. <laughs> and one of our favorite places is Cape Cod. And we go to Cape Cod about every two or three years, and we just love it there. We love the seafood, we love the beaches, and, and everyone uh, has a great time. And this one particular day was an unusually wonderful day. We had a great day in, in the, on the beach, and then toward the evening, the, the boys were the, the boys tend to cook on vacation, so the boys were cooking, and we were having things that we don't normally have, like swordfish in the grill, and, and uh, baked potatoes, and, and lots of wonderful seafood. And... We went to the store to get some dessert, and there were a whole stack of, of cherry pies there. And we decided to get five pies for the dessert because we had that many people. And we got to talking, and all the boys got to talking about their favorite 
uh, pies, and it turns out that everyone loved grandma's, my mother's, rhubarb pie. And we had a big rhubarb plant at the uh, in the back of our yard toward the end of the season. My mother would take all the rhubarb stalks and make rhubarb pie. It was unusually sweet. And when we'd visit her, all the kids and I would sneak, you know, I'm sure my mother knew exactly what we're doing. We'd sneak into the kitchen with spoons and, and have at it right out of the pan, you know, uh, the, the heck with uh, sanitation. And uh, we just love that. And the, the rhubarb pie was absolutely a- excellent. And uh, on this vacation, we all talked about it. It was too bad that, you know, mom couldn't be here and, and make us rhubarb pie. So we got through the meal. It was just that, that it was an unusually perfect evening. Everyone was happy. It was just one of those kinds of nights. The sun was setting. And, you know, you, you had to pinch yourself just to make sure that you, it was just real. It was un- unbelievable. And I kept thinking, I wish, I wish my mother could be here to be part of this. And so my wife served the cherry pie and I took a bite of it and all of a sudden I got goosebumps all over because the the pie wasn't cherry, it was rhubarb. I looked at the box, it said cherry pie, uh, but indeed this was a rhubarb pie. So you can explain it by saying, you know, somewhere in the factory or the bakery or something, a rhubarb pie got mixed up with a cherry pie. But I think that was my sign that, that my mother really was aware of what was going on and was part of our lives still. And that's what got me thinking about, you know, uh, uh, spiritual things. And and that was the first event, I think, in my life where I really thought, uh, you know, there's there's something to this and, and maybe I need to pay more attention. Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, something, you know, and I think that it's moments like that and signs like that, that, yeah, I guess you could try to explain it away of where the mishap could be, but it just feels like such a synchronicity in life. Yes. I, those I, are hard stories to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. So in this book, you have, you got 27 or 26 physicians together to kind of talk about some pretty I would say miraculous experiences just like that. Um, and to get them to actually speak about it, which I think, you know, that's, that's one of the draws that I had in the interest in this book was to actually speak to a doctor of Western medicine and to have a talk about spirituality. It really is unusual. Docs don't talk about this at all. I've, you know, in my career, I've never heard doctors talk about this unless they were prompted. And and what I did when I started to think about writing a book was hang out in the doctor's lounge and any doctor that would come in, I would say, you know, I'm writing a book. Can you uh, give me a story that, that you happen to have that, that you can't explain scientifically? And I interviewed probably about 200 docs. And it was amazing the number of stories that, that they had. And I questioned, you know, why these are ordinary practicing docs. They have no reason to want to ex- explain some of these really unusual things. And they, they actually took a risk because when you have a, a regular practice to admit that you had a vision, you had an unusual dream, that you had a premonition that saved someone's life is going out on a limb. And, I, and these doctors, I think, risk some of their, their reputations to, to, to bring these stories to light. And I questioned why they did that. And I, th- I thought for a long time about this. And I, you know, I used the term sappy do-gooders in the book. And I, and I labeled many of these doctors truly sappy do-gooders. They want to do good in the world every day. They want to help someone. And I think their motivation was that they recognized that these stories would give comfort and hope to people. And that was 
uh, a motivation that superseded their risk of, of being chastised and, and ostracized for telling these amazing and miraculous stories. So I heard some, some phenomenal stories, and it, it started out with uh, one of my orthopedic surgeons who ran up to me in, in, on the floor in the hospital and grabbed me and said, Scott, I've got to tell you, I've been dying to tell you about this mutual patient that we have and, and the story that happened to her. And I said, well, go ahead and tell me. And he said, I can't tell it here because someone might hear me. And I said, Dave, who did you tell this story to before? And he said, no one, just my wife. And that's it. I'm afraid to tell it to anyone else. So he said, let's go into an empty patient room and I'll tell you the story. And it was a story about a cardiac arrest in, in the OR. He was operating on one of my patients, and she arrested. Absent heartbeat, uh, no pulse, no respirations, eyes closed, totally dead. And uh, he, he said there was a, when they, when they call a code in the OR, everyone rushes in from the ORs around, and one of the techs that had unusually red hair with, underneath his uh, operating room cap came in and started to do CPR, and he wasn't doing it adequately enough, so Dr. Mokul realized that when she wasn't getting a, a when he, uh, there was no pulse, and he, he, he said, please step aside, please step aside, he didn't, and so he finally gave him a push and pushed him aside, and he stumbled away. He started to do CPR, and after a little bit of CPR, uh, some adrenaline, a few other drugs, so she came back, and it turns out that she arrested because of the antibiotic that they'd given her. She had an anaphylactic reaction to it. Well, uh, she survived. She uh, came to the next day, and uh, everything was, was fine. The cardiologist uh, dismissed her. And on, on leaving the hospital uh, two or three days later, uh, she, he, Dr. Mokul sat down with her and said, here are the instructions for your ankle and so forth, which, which is what he was going to operate on. And she said, she said, thank you for saving my life. Uh, Dr. Mokul is a pretty humble kind of a guy. And he said that was just a team effort. And, you know, we, uh, we all pitched in. And she said, no, no. I saw you push that guy with the red hair aside, and I saw you do my CPR, and that's when I started to come back. And I saw you look for, at the door for Dr. Kolbaba that you paged multiple times, and he didn't come because he wasn't in the hospital. And I saw, and she mentioned a dozen things that were the minutia of the arrest that no one could have known except someone that had been there. And by this time, Dr. Mokul had weak knees and had to sit down, and he, and he said, you know, how did you, how, you know, tell me what happened. And he, she said, when I arrested, I rose to the top of the, the room. I could observe everything that was happening. And I saw you push the guy away, and I saw all this, all this stuff. And she said, my grandmother, who had died 20 years ago, also came to me and told me it wasn't my time to come, but that if I was a nice and kind person, that I would have a special place in heaven when it was my time. And then she came back, and Dr. Mokul had trouble believing uh, this whole thing. And like I said, he, he didn't tell anyone this story for the longest time. And it's interesting that uh, Mary, who was kind of a not a real nice person beforehand, was the kindest and most sweet individual after this arrest. Uh, and she didn't live very long because she had lots of medical problems. She lived probably three or four years. And I'm sure at, uh, at this point, she's in that special place where her grandmother talked to her about it. And after hearing that story from Dr. Mokul, I thought, I better start writing some of these down. And, and it's interesting that there were a number of doctors that just spontaneously came to me over the next few weeks with amazing stories that I've never heard before. And I, th I think that was a way of someone upstairs telling me that I better start writing these down and, and come up with a book. Yeah. Wow. And I have to say, I give so much credit to those doctors that really faced that fear, took that risk, and gave you permission to publish their stories and were willing to be a part of this. I mean, there's a part of that that just makes me so sad. <laughs> 
it, it is. It's it's sad that doctors don't don't feel that they can can come up with these uh, stories and and just just be open with them, uh, and that's what my one of my hopes is that this book will allow doctors and and patients to be able to talk to each other and and, and give them permission to share these kinds of miraculous stories and and, uh, and even some simple stories, some coincidences that that may have happened to them, and and I'm hoping that doctors and uh, individuals that are patients will will think about their coincidences a little bit differently from now on also. Yeah, I agree. And I think that this book is, is ex- going to do that exactly. But do you feel that the doctors have that pressure um, just because, you know, medicine is supposed to be science and do they feel that pressure to really keep m- metaphysical and medicine and science very separate? Absolutely, absolutely. You know that's that's been the the tradition for for doctors, especially doctors in our area that are very conservative, um, and and um, I, I think they they try to keep things very separate. It's interesting, however, now after this book has been published, these doctors have gotten some notoriety, and no one has been criticized. As a matter of fact, doctors have been praised for coming uh, through with with these stories. And it's very interesting. We had one doctor that wanted to remain anonymous. Every other doctor wanted to remain, wanted to have their name in the book, but the one doctor that that is anonymous uh, at at our launch, uh, and he was was seeing how these doctors were really being praised for their openness, said, "I don't want to be anonymous anymore. <laughs> I, want, I want you to get my name out there because I want to be part of this movement too." And so it's <laughs> kind of cool that you know maybe this is making some difference, and the doctors will be more open, and patients may be more open too with their doctors about spiritual matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it also proves that sometimes, you know, when we work through our fears, sometimes what we fear may be the reality, the opposite actually happens, you know. And that's and that, what happened here, yeah. Yeah. And um, so as I was reading through this book, every story like the one that you just told, you know, for our listeners, if you're going to read this book, you're going to be held on the edge with every single story. It's just, it's great. They do bring comfort. I was kind of trying to figure out, okay, so how am I going to do this interview? Because I want to talk about all 26 stories. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that you have a few, uh, you know, that might stick in your mind that you would like to share on our interview. And I have about two that I would like to talk about, um, two or three. I actually have like five, um, uh-huh. that are marked, but I think we'll only have time for a couple of yours and a couple of mine. But in the very beginning of the book, you were talking talking about a patient that you had by the name of Taylor. Yes. And there there was such a very interesting story with that through you where it really was intuition. There was something that you did that made no medical sense to prescribe a certain um, scan, and it was really based on intuition. And I'd really love for you to talk about that because, you know, some of the stories are similar to, like, you know, the patients reporting back the one that you just shared of what they had seen. But this is about a medical doctor really following his intuition of something kind of almost like having that message of being sent to you and it kind of sticking with you over and over and something that you can't ignore. And this, this was an amazing story before I even got into the book. I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, so I was wondering if you could share the story of Taylor. Sure. Sure. Uh, just as an aside ahead of time, you know, I think we all get little, uh, hints about about things we should be paying attention to or things we should do, and sometimes you know those those little hints are are so strong that you can't ignore them, and sometimes they're subtle, 
and uh, I'm, I'm one of the things that I was hoping in this book is to get people to realize that there are little messages that come from from above, that sometimes can be subtle and sometimes can be very strong. This particular uh, morning, uh, the message that I had was so strong I just simply could ignore it. I had a patient that was traveling. He's a, 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 does a lot of traveling with his with his job. And uh, he was in, I think, Arkansas or Alabama, one of the southern states. And he called me up and said I was having this abdominal pain, right upper abdominal pain. And I was a little nauseated. And the first thing I think about as a doctor is that's where the gallbladder is. And that's a typical symptom for gallbladder. I said, why don't you get to one of the local hospitals, have them check you out, do some liver enzymes and ultrasound and so forth. And so he did. And I got a call about two, three hours later from the emergency room. And I said, you know, uh, Mr. Manning is in the, in the ER here. We've done all the tests, the liver enzymes, the CBC, the ultrasound. Everything was perfectly normal. We gave him some narcotic medication. He's feeling fine now, so we're going to send him out. And I said, fine. You know, when he comes back into town, have him see me, and we'll, we'll sort things out. Well, he did. A couple of days later, he showed up, and, and uh, you know, he was still having some pain. And I, I, it, it, was, it sounded just like gallbladder, right upper quadrant, abdominal pain, sometimes a little worse with eating, uh, no other symptoms. And I said, let's get a fancy your gallbladder study and, and uh, some uh, liver enzymes again and, and see if we can some amylase and uh, pancreatic enzymes. And so we did all that and all the tests were perfectly normal. And you know, it, it's really troubling when a doctor has a patient with a problem that they can't diagnose. And I'm, I was thinking about this. And uh, one morning I woke up uh, early in the morning and I had the uh, uh, idea that I, I he had to get a lung scan. Now it really didn't make much sense because a lung scan is not what uh, his symptoms were about. He had abdominal pain, but I had this strong feeling that he needed a lung scan. So uh, normally I don't call patients up at the crack of dawn and, and tell them to get a test. I usually let my nurse do that and they can do all the scheduling, which sometimes is a hassle. But I called him up early in the morning and I said, uh, Taylor, I, I, uh, I think I've had a feeling that you need to get a lung scan today. And he said, well, that's nice, but I can't. I'm, I'm going away to Colorado, and I, my plane leaves in the afternoon, and I, I, I just can't get it in today. And I felt so strongly about it. I said, if I can get it in first thing in the morning, would, would, you, would you go? There was a long pause at, on the other end of the line, and he said, okay, if you can get it in real soon, uh, I, I'll, I'll do it. So I called the x-ray department and they said, well, we can get it in in two or three days or something like that. And I raised a little stink and uh, finally they said, okay, just send him over. So I called Taylor uh, and I said, go over and, and get the lung scan right now. So about uh, two hours later, I got a call from the uh, radiologist, which is a little unusual. Usually you just get the report back and not the call. So he said, that was a good call, Scott. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there was a massive pulmonary embolus sitting on his diaphragm. That's why he had abdominal pain and not, uh, not, uh, not chest pain. And had he flown out today, uh, he would have probably died because, uh, you know, there were multiple emboli that he had in his lungs. He probably had some clots in his legs, and, and he probably would have died on, on, the, on the trip. He said, that's a good call. And I got weak knees myself and had to sit down there and realize what had just happened, that... Wow. Uh, uh, you know, we we probably saved a life because of a, of a premonition, and uh, I don't get those very often. But you know, you get little little hints here and there, and uh, I think it's worth at least paying attention to some of those. Absolutely. Well, and then you know, with all of the doctors that you've interviewed, and there's more stories in your book that are similar, you know, like that. It just uh, it makes me wonder, and maybe you can answer this question for yourself. But after you did some of this research and you were collecting all of these stories, do you begin to practice a little bit differently as a doctor? 
Well, you know, um, you pay attention to that little voice in the back of your head, and, and my, my, my partner uh, is particularly aware of that. He's had some experiences where he's had that little naggy voice say, you know, this person needs a stress test or something, and, and he, he says to me, I never ignore that. The voice, and he he was he had one episode where he was clearing a person for surgery. Uh, he thought they were perfectly fine, and a couple hours later, he kept the, that that nagging feeling kept coming to him that he needed a, a, a stress test. And sure enough, he did, got a stress test. Uh, the person, the patient, flunked the stress test badly, ended up with a, a major coronary disease uh, by angiogram, and ended up with a bypass that probably saved his life. So we. I think I am paying more attention to those little voices, and and uh, he is too. And I think many doctors uh, do. And and that I think is a little additional help from above that uh, uh, gives us a little a little uh, hint of, about what's what's going on. And, and I think God or whoever you believe in it does participate in our lives and, and helps guide us in, in many cases. Yeah. Um, and, you know, right off the bat in chapter one, uh, there's a Dr. Luis. I might butcher his last name. Um, so Manrique. I'm just going to call him Dr. Luis. Manrique. <laughs> okay. Um, so Dr. Manrique. What was interesting about just reading that story, sometimes I think we forget that doctors are humans too, human beings. <laughs> you know, yes. they have lives just like we do. And yep. um, this doctor's story was really more, had nothing to do about you know, working in the practice, but it was something that happened in his own life. And, uh, the chapter is entitled, if I had been buckled. Yes. And, um, you know, this, I think this was just a great way to start the book because it really just hooks you in right away. And I was wondering if we could just talk a little bit about this one as well. Sure. Louise uh, Manrique is an infectious disease specialist here, and I use him all the time for, and he's a, he's a wonderful doctor, wonderful ordinary doctor. And he um, uh, came from Peru, so he had to uh, take a test in Peru to get into medical school. And I think there were like 20,000 uh, students taking that test, and they accepted like 100 or something, and he was one of the 100. And so he was lucky enough to get into a medical school there and eventually emigrated to the United States where he uh, uh, got a position in, in infectious disease and is now a great infectious disease doc. He tells about a story uh, when he was in medical school. And he was sleeping in a, a, a very small apartment. And uh, uh, one night, uh, he was—he he thought he was asleep. Uh, he wasn't sure if he was asleep or dreaming or, or he was partially awake, but he refused to open his eyes because he, he was afraid that if he opened his eyes, the, the dream might become real. And so uh, evidently, the room, uh, he said, filled with light. And he heard this voice. Uh, somewhere behind him, which didn't make any sense because his bed was up against the wall. So there was nothing behind him except the wall. And the voice said uh, something like, you're going to be okay. And he thought it was a strange uh, thing to, to say. He was a little afraid uh, that this voice would, would be so so prominent in, in his dream. And he was very quiet after that because he wanted to hear the rest of the story and there was no other story. And then the light seemed to fade in the room and, and he never opened his eyes. So he wasn't again sure whether this was a dream or it was real. And so the next day, uh, the dream kind of disappeared from, from his uh, consciousness and he went through the whole day. It was a Friday and, and you know, medical school is pretty tough. And, and that evening they decided to go out with a couple of their medical students to a, a local bar and uh, they were having some drinks. 
And, uh, you know, the medical students had to study pretty hard, so <laughs> they were all sleep deprived. So after about two hours at the bar and a couple beers, they decided that, you know, they were all too tired to, to continue and they just decided to go home. So they had a designated driver who had actually been drinking, so I don't know why they had a designated driver. And while they were driving, uh, on the road, uh, the driver started to get a little crazy and started to go back and forth and swerve. And Luis was a little afraid sitting in the passenger seat. He was unbuckled. And he decided to, to buckle himself up. And the driver looked at him and said uh, in, in an unusually serious tone, you don't need to buckle. So he let go of the buckle. And about five seconds later, they came to a sharp turn. And the car uh, didn't make the turn and started to roll. And the, the driver's uh, side door opened up. The driver was thrown out of the car and ultimately killed. He was alive for a couple days, but in the hospital, ultimately died of his accident. And the car rolled over multiple times. And Luis happened to be uh, pushed over into the driver's seat from the passenger seat because he wasn't buckled. And when the car uh, finally settled down, it was upside down. And he looked over to where the passenger seat was, and the the, the uh, roof of the car was crushed down onto the passenger seat. Had he been buckled and sitting in the passenger seat, he would have been crushed and killed. And so he got out. Of the uh, people in the back of the car were, were injured, and he got out of the car quickly and ran to the local fire uh, department where they where he directed the fire ambulance and so forth to the scene of the accident. And um, the fire department came and, and rescued everyone else in the car, and he sat on the curb, and, and he suddenly realized that he wasn't hurt at all, nothing. He didn't have a scrape. He was covered with glass from the windshield, but there was no injury whatsoever. And suddenly the dream that he had the day, night before flooded into his mind, and he said, I realized then that this was a the voice of an angel or God or something telling him that he would be safe uh, from that from that accident. And sure enough, he was. He, he was. And when he got home, he, he uh, uh, sat down and, and got on his knees and, and with tears in his eyes, prayed, thanking the Heavenly Father for saving saving his life and for warning him about the accident the, the night before. Yeah, and in that story, it was um, interesting how he also noted that, you know, the driver, his friend, that it was so unlike him to say not to buckle in. Yes. He just said that that, that, wasn't, that wasn't like him, but he listened to him, you know, and decided to, to go ahead and do that, which was uncanny of his personality. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's stories like that, whether you're a doctor or a scientist, I, I just can't believe that you can go X amount of years living on planet Earth and not having at least one weird story to tell that would just blow you out of the water, you know, to say, hmm, was that synchronicity? Was that something, you know, beyond me? Um, you know, so I like that story because it, it really didn't have a whole lot to do necessarily with his, you know, medical career, but it was just showing that, yeah, you know, doctors probably are experiencing uh, very, you know, interesting stories throughout their life as well as we are. And, and, you know, April, that's very true, because now that I've written the book, people are coming to me with stories of their own. And I'm amazed at the number of people that have had stories that are miraculous and incredible. And, and I think my feeling now is that I think everyone has had a story like this at some point in their life or someone in their family has. And I also think that people, uh, when they really look back at, at the coincidences in their lives, should realize and, and are realizing 
that many of those coincidences where they happened to bump into someone that happened to get them a job or happened to direct them to a school where they needed to go or whatever were really not coincidental at all. They were something and some force or whatever. I call it God. Most of the doctors call it, call it the, the, the hand of God. But whatever it is, uh, there's something that looks out for us and directs us to, to, to do good things and, and to, to be successful in our lives. Yes, I would agree. And this is actually a perfect segue into the next story that I wanted to talk about, which is in chapter 11, The Dime. And I have heard these types of stories countless times. Um, I think many people have heard before that pennies and dimes can sometimes signify either angels or past loved ones. And I have quite a few stories, um, just personally here in my own private practice, with some clients. Um, one in particular, I had somebody coming in for a Reiki session, um, and it was an 8.30 client. And my five o'clock client the day before um, was also a Reiki session. And, you know, we had finished and I had changed the sheets and I put new sheets on and came back to the office the next morning. And at 8.30, my next client comes in and both of her parents had passed and her mother recently passed this year. So we talked a little and we go to bring her onto the Reiki table and I pull back the blanket and what's there but a penny and a dime. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, so we're both like, oh my God, look at this. And she had found after her mother um, had passed away more recently, I, it was either a penny or a dime with the year of her mom's um birth, you know, some, something of that sort where it kind of like made that connection. And that was a sign for her. Um, yeah. I'm also in the process of moving my private practice to a new building. And I believe in the penny and dimes as being signs because I see them a lot all the time when I'm asking for certain signs. And as I was cleaning out the new office, you know, I go into one of the closets and I'm sweeping and sure enough, there's a penny right there. And, uh, and it had my birth date, 1977. <laughs> so I was like, there's my sign. I'm like, okay, I know I'm supposed to definitely be here. Um, yeah. so that was really cool. So when I came across chapter 11, I just had a smirk the entire time I was reading it. Um, cool. <laughs> and uh, I have a couple of other, uh, penny and dime stories, but those are two that I will share. Um, and I'm not sure if you've had any personal penny or dime stories, but you did share the one of Dr. Stephen Graham. Yeah, that was a, that's a good story. And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, when you write a book, you have editors that edit the book and, and help you with your grammar and things like that and, and tell you what, you know, if this is a great, great story or not a great story. And my editor said, you can't put this story and it's not a very good story. And I love the story, the dime story. And so she took it out of the book. And I, I kept. I kept on thinking, I've got to put this story in somehow. So I rewrote the story again to make it more interesting. It was still true, but I just rewrote it, you know, some of the words and so forth. And I finally said, said to her, you know, read this story again, see if you, if you like it. And she said, well, you wrote it a lot better this time. I still don't like the story, but I'll put it in the book. And so <laughs> I, I love this story. It's a story Steve Graham, who's an emergency room doc, told me. And he was seeing a patient who um, had some, I think, with diverticulitis uh, problem in the, middle, in the middle of the night. And he noticed he had a tattoo on his arm that was an unusual tattoo. It was a tattoo of a dime. And he got, the curiosity got 
the better of him. And he said, you know, tell me about that, that dime. It's an unusual thing to have a dime tattooed on your arm. And, and the fellow said, you know, my son collects coins and, and uh, he, uh, his favorite coin is a dime. And it seems like whenever we would go to a special event, like a Cubs game or something, he'd pull up the seat uh, or pull down the seat to sit down and there'd be a dime there. Or we'd go to a special restaurant and he'd look under his plate and there'd be a dime. And he said, my son was killed in an automobile accident. And ever since he was killed, I've been finding dimes. And I find dimes at special events that, that he would have loved. And he says, I think my son is looking out for me. And I had this tattoo put on my arm to let him know that I know that he's looking out for me and he sees me and he, he, you know, he helps me in, in what I'm doing. And he leaves a dime here and there to, to let me know. And, and Dr. Graham, who's a pretty ordinary, uh, you know, conservative kind of a doc, thought this was a nice story, but, you know, and, and we just, could, just couldn't believe it. So he finished his exam, finished his treatment, got him on some antibiotics and sent him on his way. He went back to the dictation area where patients aren't allowed to go and uh, was going to dictate his note. And he pulled the chair out and looked down. There was something shining on the floor and it was a dime. And Dr. Graham then said to, said to me, I realized then that there's something else and that maybe, you know, this was maybe he was looking out for him. And it's interesting, that's not the end of the story, because I had my wife, uh, when I first wrote the story, my wife is my number one editor. She, uh, she'll tell me, and, and frequently she'll say, oh, Scott, you didn't do a good job on this. Rewrite, this. rewrite this story. This is not, you know, it doesn't touch my heart yet. And so she read the dime story and, and kind of liked it. And I said, that's great. I'll, I'll, you know, proof it and so forth, correct the spelling. And she walked into the other room uh, to do something, and there on the counter was a dime. <laughs> and that's not the end of the story either, because ever since that time, I have been finding dimes in crazy places and at crazy times. And, and if there's something that's that's, that's going to happen that was is, is really neat sometimes during the day, uh, I'll find a dime. The other day, for example, I was getting dressed in the morning. I was putting on a pair of pants, and there pops out of the pants a dime that fell on the floor. Now, it must have been in my pocket or something, but, you know, it's just, it's it's crazy uh, the way this happens. So I think you're right, April, that I think there's someone else up there, and, and uh, maybe it's Robbie, who is Steve Graham's, uh, the, the, the boy that had died, uh, is is still a part of, the, part of the picture here. So I don't know. Yeah, it's, well, I am, I'm so happy to hear that you put that story back in. I did. I, I love the story. My wife loves the story, too. And I had to put it back in, even despite my editor. Yeah. And I've had so, so many um, people, friends, clients, um, friends of friends, you know, that there are so many, I think, penny and dime stories out there. You could probably create a whole book about the site, the sightings of penny and dimes as being signs from lost loved ones. And I bet our, our listeners probably have tons of stories as well. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I love that story. That was really just good and kind of validating, I guess, so many of the penny and dime stories that I've personally have had to. So, mm -hmm. um, I'm happy you put that in. I, am um, too. I think, you know, it just shows that there are things that we can't explain that I think when people have le left the earth and, and are, are, have died, that I think they still are aware of what we're doing here and still still participate in our lives in some interesting and strange ways. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I guess there's one more story um, that it just, again, all of them kind of blow me out of the water. But this one, after I read it, I was kind of thinking, 
I feel like I've heard this before and I don't know if, if I had, or, um, if maybe this was put on a news channel or something of that sort, but it's the story about, uh, praying for a miracle in chapter 22, Dr. Thomas Marshall and working with Barb. Yes. Barb was a local girl. This is a story that happened a number of years ago, and it's very interesting that I had trouble with this story also. Uh, I'll just give you a side of, of, of some of the background of the story. Uh, I love the story. I wrote the story. I, I communicated with Dr. Marshall to get all the details and all the other doctors that were involved with her case, and I couldn't find the patient, Barb Kaminsky. Uh, she'd moved away, and I couldn't find her. And I kept looking for her, trying to, you know, I had these search engines and so forth. Uh, I, I, I paid for some uh, special search engines that would find lost people. And, and I just, I, I wrote some letters and made some calls. And, and I was had to turn on the manuscript to the publisher that week. And I was so disappointed that I couldn't find her. I had to take that story out of the book because I couldn't use it without her permission. And about a day before I had to turn the manuscript in, I get a phone call. And who is it? Barb Kaminsky. Oh, awesome. <laughs> How did you know to call me? And she said, well, you know, I got this phone call about six months ago from you, and you left a message, and I never called you back. And I just thought about it this week, and I thought I'd, I, I, I thought I'd just check and see if you're still writing that book. I said, yes, thank you for calling. I need your permission and so forth. And she said, that's no problem at all. You've got my permission. Send me, fax me the, the permission slip. I'll sign it. And, and so we, I, I was able to turn in the story with the manuscript. So that's kind of an interesting background on the story. But the story goes something like this. Uh, Tom Marshall is one of the local doctors here that's a general internist. And he was taking care of Barb Kaminsky. And Barb's history was that of multiple sclerosis. And she had progressive multiple sclerosis, which is a very deforming uh, disease that affects the the nerves and the body and the brain. And she was at her end stage, basically. She uh, couldn't walk anymore. She had a tracheostomy tube in her neck. Uh, she was um, uh, unable to get up and around. She had braces on. Uh, she had a collapsed lung, so she could hardly breathe very well. Her vision, she was now legally blind. And um, uh, Tom talked with she and the family, and they decided to put her in hospice. And hospice means generally when you uh, admit a person to hospice, you have to certify that they have less than six months to live. And Tom uh, told me that he felt that she was going to die any any day. Any any little infection would, would, would take her life. And so it was just a matter of days before she would, she would be dead. And there was a radio show uh, at that time that – uh, as, that solicited prayers for individuals that were having really, really tough, tough times. And uh, Barb happened to be on the show this particular week, and, and uh, there were lots and lots of prayers that went up for her. And her aunt uh, came to visit her on a Sunday, and she brought a bag of all the, the letters that had come from the audience of this radio show. And, and it was really a heavy bag with all the uh, people that had, had been praying for her. And Barb thought that was really, really nice, but but she was pretty sick and wanted to go to sleep. And all of a sudden, she heard a voice in her room. It was a, it was a man's voice, and it said uh, something like, uh, my child, get up and walk. And immediately, she thought it was the voice of God. That's what she told me. And she immediately stood up, and she hadn't been standing for, for months and probably even years. Uh, took off her braces. She took the oxygen off of her of her neck where she had the tracheostomy tube. She was able to walk into the next room. She saw her parents who just started to cry with, with joy that she could she could even walk. 
And uh, her vision came back, and she started to do a ballet. She was a ballet dancer when she was a younger girl, and she started to do a ballet for her for her uh, for her parents. Her mother fell down on her knees, looked at her ankles and her legs, and she had her muscles back. And she had atrophied, you know, tremendously before, but her muscles and her legs were back. Uh, Barb was so excited about being able to walk that she sat down on the couch and bounced up and down about 20, 20 times because she was so excited that she could sit and rise and sit and rise. And the family, you know, spontaneously went into a prayer, uh, thanking God for, for, you know, deliverance of, of this, you know, this terrible illness. And the next day, she decided to go to church. It was an evening service. And she had no clothes to wear because her mother had given all her clothes away because she would never wear clothes again because she was so disabled that she was never going to get out of out of bed. So she had to borrow a dress. And that, so she was late for church. And, and she walked into the, the local church here in Wheaton. And the pastor saw her first because he was looking, you know, he was, he was speaking in the, on the pulpit and suddenly lost his voice. He, he couldn't say anything. He didn't know what to say. He thought he was seeing a vision because he thought for sure she was going to die. And as Barb walked down the aisle, people started to whisper, there's Barb Kaminsky. I thought she was die I thought she was dead. I thought she, you know, was disabled. What What's going on here? And and it, it, this, this is a moment that must have must have resonated with everyone in the church, and they must remember this forever. They spontaneously started to sing Amazing Grace. So can you imagine a person walking down the hall that had basically been a, a dead person, uh, the whole congregation singing Amazing Grace, the pastor sitting there with tears, standing there with tears in his eyes, unable to even speak. And uh, what a miracle that that, that was. And uh, Barb uh, continued she saw Dr. Marshall the next day, who took out all of her tubes, got some x-rays, and everything had returned to normal. Her collapsed lung was normal. Everything was normal. And Barb continued then. She, she, she vowed that since she had been cured miraculously, that she would dedicate her life to, to God. And she really has. She married a, a minister. She lives out east now, and she's, uh, she's a do-gooder. She, she's doing uh, all kinds of good things, helping people in the world uh, the best she can. And, uh, and she still remembers uh, you know, vividly this, this whole uh, episode. And uh, it's quite a, quite a thing. That was truly a miracle. Yeah, that's a story that just gives you chills and goosebumps all over. Uh, and how old was she? Did you did you mention she her was, age by any chance? Um, let's see. She was probably in her twenties at the time. Wow. And that was about thirty years ago, and she's now you know obviously older and and uh, still involved with religion and and teaching and helping helping others. And still physically well, and the multiple Perfectly sclerosis well. never came back. Totally wow. Gone. Totally. So, gone. how would science or the medical community? If, if there wasn't a belief in some sort of miracle, is there any possible way that science could explain what happened? You know, I think someone could always explain something uh, with, with, uh, with with some scientific uh, methods. You know, maybe the, uh, something uh, changed in her, in her chemistry. There was something that happened. But, you know, when a person... Uh, develops muscles that they didn't have before suddenly within hours. I don't think you can explain that scientifically at all. There's there's right. there's no way to explain that as far as I can tell. That was just a miracle. Yeah, and and that story really um, 
you know, with that, the bag of prayers just, you know, really reminds me of the power of prayer or healing circles. Or when we set that intention, you know, for a prayer group, or, you know, if you put somebody in a Facebook feed that says, you know, can you please send prayers and positive thoughts to so-and-so for their surgery? Um, you know, that they're finding that there is a collective consciousness and that, that really does create an impact. And that's what made me think of that, that impact of the group of people of all having these positive healing intentions for this one person. And I know, I know that some people would say, Oh, well maybe it was the placebo, the placebo effect, but the placebo effect is very real as well. Yes, it is. (laughs) I think there's Um, power in prayer. There's lots of doctors that have told me stories of prayer that have been absolutely Absolutely miraculous, and I think there's a great power in prayer. There's a great power in in a in a um, uh, a collective prayer too, multiple people praying for an individual. I think that is even more powerful. Yes, I would agree. So, and for our listeners, you know, there we've only touched on a few stories. Every single story in this book is amazing, and it's wonderful. And like I said, Dr. Scott, I would love to talk about probably 20 more <laughs> um, if we could. But before we wrap up, is, is there anything in particular, any one story that um, you really feel always needs to be shared during a podcast interview that you would like our listeners to hear? Oh, you know, I've I've got lots of favorite stories, and and I I, I listened to I, I interviewed two hundred doctors, and I listened to many many stories, and the only stories I included in the book were stories that either gave me goosebumps or made me cry, and not out of sadness, but out of emotion, and I still get goosebumps and tear up even when I read my own stories. It's it's crazy. Uh, one of my favorites though is the Grandma Hanlon story. Do you want me to tell that one? Yes, please. Uh, Grandma Hanlon was a midwife that delivered babies. She was an Irish midwife, and she, well, this was um, uh, a fair number of years ago, and she worked in the Irish community in the south side of Chicago. And she was a, a spiritual leader of the family. She'd deliver babies and sometimes do it for nothing. And she'd stay with the mother for a number of weeks to help out at the, in the home. And if the people couldn't pay, she said that was fine. You know, she just did this for, uh, out of the kindness. And Grandma Hanlon, uh, eventually, and Grandma Hanlon was the grandmother of Joan Heitzler, uh, who's Dr. Heitzler's wife. And so Grandma Hanlon uh, ultimately uh, uh, became older, could not deliver babies anymore, and, and, and lived with Joan Heitzler's mother. And uh, so Joan Heitzler, her mother, and her grandma uh, lived together. And Joan would always say that if I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap, if I got in trouble with my mom and I could get to Grandma Hanlon's lap, I'd be safe. And so that was an interesting thing. And they, they loved each other. They had an incredible loving bond together. And Joan was delivering, Joan Heisler was delivering her fifth child, and um, uh, she had she started to experience a great deal of pain. The delivery was done, but they were doing some procedures after the delivery, and she was in a fair amount of pain. At the time, they decided to give her some trilene, which is an anesthetic that goes over the face. It's a mask, and, and that puts a person into a deep sleep, and they can do the procedures without any pain, obviously. And so they were about ready to put the trilene mask over Joan's face when all of a sudden, Grandma Hanlon steps into the room, the delivery room. She stands at the foot of the bed, and she's dressed in her little polka dot dress that she always had and a sweater vest and her hair was put up in the bun and she had a grand, old grandma handling shoes on. And she shook her head. No, don't do that, Joan. And so Joan pushed the trilene away and um, she decided to kind of tough it out and not, not take the anesthetic uh, and not be unconscious. Well, no one realized that Joan had eaten a large meal about uh, uh, just before she went into labor. And about a minute after she pushed the trilene mask away, she vomited the entire meal. 
had she had the mask on and been unconscious, she would have probably aspirated. She may have died or had a serious complication from an aspiration pneumonia. And so uh, Grandma Hanlon slipped out of the room, her mission accomplished. Joan had made it to her lap one last time, overcoming time and all eternity, because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before. Mm, I love that story. It's a good story. I love that story, too. Yes. And how, how would you say, after writing this book and all of the exposure that you've gotten, I know that you've been you know, doing a lot of interviews and just getting feedback from people and probably hearing from the other doctors and the feedback that they're getting. How has it changed your life? You know, uh, you can't help but have a stronger faith when you write a book like this and get so much feedback from from doctors and from from people. And and what's happening now is people are telling me their own stories. You know, they read this book and they say, "I've got a story of my own I want to tell you." And you know, that's a that's a very uh, faith strengthening. Uh, 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 thing that, that that's gone on in my life, I'm more optimistic about the future. Um, I think I have hope, much more hope than I did before. And you know, there are lots of bad things that happen in the world. People die, people get sick. Uh, you know, there's financial issues that people have, and and this this these stories have given me hope that there's something else that loves us. There's a God out there that looks out for us, that guides us. And if we listen to the little things, uh, the little promptings here and there, and the, and, and pay attention to the coincidences, uh, we'll be a lot more peaceful and, and hopeful. And I think that's what's happened to other people that have read the book. I think I've, I think we were able to give them some hope that there's something else and that someone loves them unconditionally. And that's my great great joy. When I hear a person say to me, I read your book and I feel so much better about my life now, that is what it's all about. Yeah. And have you continued to practice medicine or has this book taken you away from your practice or are you doing I'm, both? I'm still practicing. I tell my patients when I, when I, when, when I get it perfect, I'll quit, but I'm still practicing and it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't taken me away. And, um, I think, um, uh, I think I'm, I'm looking to write another book at some point in my abundant leisure time, sometime between midnight and 2 AM, but I'm still practicing full time and I love my practice. Well, thank you so much. This was just a great book to come across my lap and to read. It brought me a lot of um, just hope and peace, and it was really fun to, you know, read these stories. I think anybody that picks this book up is going to love it. Um, could you let our listeners know where they can find it if they would like to purchase it? Sure. Physicians Untold Stories. The main place is probably Amazon. It's available through a Kindle and also a soft cover. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for being a guest on the Path 11 podcast. I really enjoyed this interview. Thanks, April. It's fun to be here. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepathseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.